This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about Facebook and all social media. And you might think to yourself, You've done wow, this before. <laughs> you've done a lot of that. It's like zero season zero through three. That's like all you talked about, basically. And you're right. But in the intervening time, since we've been talking about that, things have started to change in relation to social media. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to look back at some of the issues that we've covered and see how they have changed. Because as we noted in the last episode, things like this can change. And that's sort of the point of this season is that how do things change and the ways that they change are really valuable to understand, particularly in a society that feels like nothing can change, right? which is the case in some areas, or a society that feels like everything is changing all the time and we can't get a hold of it. <laughs> yeah. As we jump in on this, specifically today, we're looking at people's attitudes, sort of the outstanding cultural view as, as best we can see it towards social media. And that's different and you'll see this especially when we get into our evaluation of where this sits on the positive-negative axis. That's different from what our thoughts are necessarily on social media itself. Whether social media as we're using it is a net positive or negative is a different discussion from the one we're going to have today. The one we're going to have today is not about the pressures that social media itself has on us, in large part because we've touched on those before, but rather what do people's attitudes and specifically the change in people's attitudes towards social media, how do those affect the way that we use it? And so we're particularly interested in the fact that over the past five to eight years, it seems that people have started to take more critical stances towards social media. This is actually something that we have asked people to do in mm -hmm. this podcast and People are doing it, which is fantastic. Yay. And it's all because so, we asked Yeah, it. totally. <laughs> everyone who reads this, everyone who listens to this is totally, totally driving all of the social change. All of the all social of the change in the entire world. Totally. But we're actually – that's – That's totally. Dear listener, dear <laughs> listeners, uh, what we are interested in and why we think this is a positive shift is that people have started to evaluate the claims of – social medias, social media sites, social media providers, as well as starting to evaluate the elements of their life that they want to put on the web, as well as evaluating their relationships that they have with people who they are now connected to. This is a positive thing. People are claiming agency. We actually made a whole episode called You Have Agency, Use It. And so this is a positive shift that is happening. It's not a negative phenomenon that we're discussing. We're discussing specifically a positive, what we feel is a positive, shift in how people are thinking about digital technologies. And while we can extrapolate this into all the ways that this would be really great if people continued to do this, perhaps on the privacy front, <laughs> right now we're going to celebrate that this is something that has been changing. And in particular, we're going to get to how that changed. Right. Because what's fascinating to us here is not simply that there was a change, although that has some interest, but in this structural analysis that we've put together, what kind of shift is this and what kinds of systemic pressures or freedoms exist now? So here's a positive change, but in this 
three-axis system. It's a positive, invisible social shift. And currently, the structural pressures and structural freedom that exist are not what they were a few years ago. As Stephen and I were joking even before we started recording the show, there was a point a few years ago where if you weren't on Facebook, people kind of looked at you like, what's wrong with you? Have you not have you not heard of Facebook? Well, get with the times. <laughs> and to a lesser extent, the same was true of Twitter. You will pick up some of that depending on the social circles you run in and perhaps how old you are for things like mm-hmm. Instagram or Snapchat. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, there is an increasing recognition across all age groups and across all segments of culture, as far as we can tell, that social media are not unmitigated goods. And they may not be entirely horrific evils either, but they're not unmitigated goods. And so socially, whereas there was a point a few years ago where there was a lot of active, albeit still fairly invisible, pressure to be on and engaged with social media, it is no longer weird for someone to say, guys, gals, people who read my Facebook feed, this is not being good for me. I'm going to step away for a month or a year or three weeks or however long. Mm -hmm. When that first started happening, people looked at that a bit confused. Now that's normal. In some ways, it acts as a kind of virtue signaling where people even admire it. And so doing it can be something that gets people to approve of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. That's a change. It is. But it's not something that there's been a mass movement. It's not this big, visible, organized thing. Rather, it is basically an invisible thing that has happened and has happened socially. There's, of course, no legal pressure. And so the structural pressures that now exist, perhaps even incentivizing people, as I just said, to get off of Facebook, to spend less time on Twitter and so on, those aren't legal. They're social. Those aren't particularly visible. They're sort of undercurrents in our culture, and yet they're very real. And so it's particularly interesting in thinking about how this occurred. As we mentioned, 2009, if you were in college and not on Facebook, people would look at you weird and you wouldn't get invited to any social events because (laughs) Facebook was the way that we invited people to social events. That was just the way it was. So that was seven years ago. It was five years after... Facebook had just been born. So, you know, the early adopters had done their early adopting and <laughs> we were well into the the general adoption phase, if not even past the general adoption phase into the laggard phase for talking about the various stages of technology adoption. And from there, instead of saying it's this cool thing, you should jump on it, people started to be able to critique it. And since social media is solely a social phenomena, if there were no people, there would be no Facebook. (laughs) You have to have people involved in it. So even though it does take place on a technological sphere, the technology does not do anything for you in a strict sense. It only allows as many people who are on it to be connected. Mm -hmm. It's not like Uber, which will bring a car to you. (laughs) It's true. It's a a technological difference. It's a pretty important difference. I rode Uber and Lyft a bunch of times last week, and that's very different from posting or not posting on Facebook. Right. So in one way, there's nothing but social connections there. Obviously, in other ways, there are giant technological artifices and ad (laughs) schemes and campaigns and businesses that are getting squeezed out of having their content be 
filtered down towards the people who actually are fan pages. There's definitely all of that. But at the level that we're talking about today, we're focused on the fact that people relating to people have caused this shift to happen. Right. One person saying, I'm not on Facebook, allows you to say, oh, I guess you cannot be on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I guess that's something you can do. And that that's, that's new. It is. And that individual shift triggered in many ways by individual voices, whether that was Nick Carr talking about the way that Google changes our brains or any of thousands of think pieces written on Medium about the good and bad of social media over the last few years, uh, or one-off podcasts with small listenerships like our own. Those individual actions and individual changes can add up, even though they're not organized, and even though they're not highly visible. One person getting off of Facebook and doing so publicly is visible perhaps only to a fairly small group of people, that person's friends or acquaintances on Facebook. Mm -hmm. But that adds up when enough people do it. It constitutes when enough people do it, when enough people are thinking about it, when enough people are talking about it, an actual structural change, an actual social shift. Mm -hmm. And that in turn can create social or structural pressure on other people, at the very least, to think a bit about how they use Facebook. Whereas it was very possible to fairly uncritically think about it in 2008 or 2009. It is still possible But it is much more difficult because probably if you're on Facebook, even if you're on Twitter, you have seen people that you follow there publicly say, I'm done, I'm out, whether because of privacy concerns or simply because they're concerned about the way it affects their daily lives. And when enough people are doing that, it prompts you to take a step back as well and say, should I take a break? Should I Mm -hmm. think about how much I use this? Is this a good thing? And so there's sort of a reverse adoption of technology stance here. So in the same way that people were adopting Facebook in the traditional manner, early adopters, early majority, large majority, and laggards, it seems that people are leaving Facebook or at least considering shifting their Facebook usage. Mm-hmm. And we're focusing primarily on Facebook because Twitter it's the has, biggest. It's the biggest. And Twitter has always been plagued with, I'm gone, I'm back, I'm gone, I'm back. <laughs> I haven't tweeted in a year and now I'm tweeting every day. That's just the nature of Twitter. And that's just Steven's own account. Yeah, and that's just my account. Uh, so that's the reason that we're picking on Facebook here. But this can be for any social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't really do Snapchat uh, unless Chris is holding out on me. But <laughs> we're, we're probably too old to do Snapchat. We're, we're yeah. boring old people now. So there could be any number of phenomena going on there related to social self-critical awareness that uh, we just don't know about. But back to Facebook, the strategy of adoption seems to also be kind of appropriating this strategy of unadoption. So the early people said, hey, you can quit Facebook and here's how. And so that gets people thinking like, well, maybe I could. I, I'm not ready to yet, but maybe I maybe I could. Mm-hmm. And then you see some more people and then you see a lot of people and then like somebody who you really respect does it. And then maybe you're like, OK, it's time. I'm sick of X, Y and Z, whether X, Y and Z is all the political views or oversharers 
or the fact that you check it 15 times a day compulsively or the fact that you can no longer really access the content that you want because you were interested in knowing about bands and that's it. Whatever that change is, which some of that comes from the technology side, some of that is strictly from the social side. Sometimes you don't want to be as close to people as you thought you did. <laughs> True and story. So taking all those things into account that don't have anything to do with a social structure in the same way that this direct relationship of thinking about, can I do this, does, all of those things still feed into the idea that I could do this if I wanted to because these other people have made it okay. Right. I feel like I could still have a life or I feel like I could still you know, be a part of this community even if I don't have Facebook because these other people do it. And of course, that's sitting as its own kind of structural support against a strong social and structural pressure to use social media mm -hmm. for all that this enables people not to do it as much. And of course, for all that as an individual, the pressure here was never so strong that you couldn't opt out. Plenty of people have. Uh -huh. It's sitting against a very strong, even now, structural pressure that is also invisible to be engaged on social media, to be able to see say, pictures of friends' children who live in another state, or pictures of families' children who live in another state, or to be able to know what's going on with your grandparents because they've decided that this is the primary way they're going to communicate with family now, or mm -hmm. any of these things, especially when you have a form of media as large and pervasive as Facebook, mm -hmm. you have competing social pressures and structural pressures. And one of the things we haven't touched on in depth so far in this season, but that is a very real thing to remember, is most structures in a given space, most systemic pressures in a given space don't operate alone. There are usually competing structures, competing ideas about how we ought to do things, and competing habits and patterns of life that push back against those. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to stretch that out further, one of the things that the Amish community does, which is interesting in looking at all of these, but perhaps especially technology things like Facebook, is provide a clear piece of evidence and a certain, just by dint of their existence, a certain amount of structural pressure against the idea that things like Facebook or cars are mandatory for our existence. Now, that's a that's a complicated thing. We're not going to dive into it in a great deal of depth. But yeah. it serves – yeah, that would be a long – that would be an episode all by itself, at least. Yeah. Maybe a season. At least. Uh, season six, Amish time. Amish people. <laughs> but no, there's a sense in which any group sufficiently large choosing to take that kind of stand about a given piece of technology and, frankly, even just a number of disorganized individuals – taking those kinds of stands or making those kinds of moves, if it's not a carefully considered ethical stand, about the use of a piece of technology, about, in this case, social media, mm -hmm. makes a difference in the structure in society in general. And that's worth generalizing a bit. Right. Not necessarily the Amish approach particularly, but the recognition that refusal has a kind of power, has a kind of ability to shape cultural norms that we shouldn't overlook. Right. Although it is important to note that Amish, some of them, still use tractors. 
because mm-hmm. those are technology that they have found to be consonant with the type of lifestyle that they want to be living. And so there's an overarching view there that guides whether or not they adopt a certain technology or not. And I right. think that's particularly relevant to what we've been doing over the past few seasons is that we're not anti-technology in the least. <laughs> we're recording a podcast. <laughs> about technology. But we are very much interested in thinking critically about technologies that we use and whether or not they are valuable for the particular views and the ways that we want to be living that we hold. Now, some of that is arguing that there are views and ways that we want to be living that we should acknowledge that don't necessarily flow directly along the line of the latest early adopter trends. Some people do want to live that way. Some people don't. And so I think it's interesting with this particular example that it is a shift away from a certain technology, not for everyone, not for the same reasons, but for a lot of built up reasons that come from the social fabric of using this particular technology. And I think that it's valuable to say this is something that can be applied to other things. Right. So this is one of the first non-business reason rejections of technology at a large scale that Chris and I have seen. So you could say that in the late 1990s, the dot-com bust was a rejection of a certain type of business model. However, that was more of a business sort of response in that all of these businesses did not have a way to make money effectively. (laughs) Just kind of a big deal when you're a business. A business, yeah. I mean, pets.com probably would have been embraced by many pet owners if they had had a way to make money. Details. Details, details. So we've looked at other technologies before and we've pondered about if they are inevitable and if they are able to be avoided. And this is something that Chris and I have been talking about for a while and we haven't been able to come up with really good concrete examples of this happening. And one of the problems that we had when we discussed can you reject a technology is – how do you enforce this sort of thing? Do you just like wholesale the community says we need to get our government to say that this is not allowed, <laughs> which seems like a possibility, but not particularly one since we are tied to a techno bureaucratic economy at the moment that is going to be feasible in a large scale over a long period of time. For instance, something completely unrelated to social media In the great state of Texas, where they reserve the right to leave the union and they believe in states' rights and small government, various cities in Texas have tried to stop oil companies from drilling in their city limits. However, the state of Texas is basically run on oil money. And so the state of Texas came in and said the cities are not allowed to not allow technology to come into their borders. So – At some level, there is a very, very strong, persistent government plus economy barrier to resisting technology. Intriguingly, this is not a legal change. It is a positive, invisible change from a social, disorganized sort of way. And so that is something that's possible as a way to reject things. Right. A friend and I were talking on Twitter yesterday, and he 
offered the example on a related conversation of Google Glass. And that's also worth distinguishing from this kind of a change because Google Glass is stupid. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It it was impossible for Google Glass not to be awkward. And whatever utility it had was pretty clearly and obviously outweighed in most people's experience by the fact that it was really, really awkward. Whereas that isn't the case for something like Facebook. And so it's worth thinking about why and how people reject and the extent to which we can reject things which have obvious utility. There's a big difference, and more than that, whose immediate utility, at least at a surface level, seems to outweigh the immediate costs. Mm -hmm. People didn't reject Google Glass because they were thinking about broad ethical structures to their lives or anything like that. They rejected Google Glass because it was really awkward and it looked stupid and it wasn't that useful. And they didn't want to be surveilled. Right. And they didn't want to have things going on in the area that, you know, even weren't directly around them to be surveilled. Exactly. The, The immediate costs were obvious enough that it was easy for people to say, whatever benefits this might have, don't outweigh those. Right. But when we look at something like Facebook, the immediate costs, they're not particularly high. The immediate benefits are very high. And the reasons that people tend to express for why they're moving away from or reducing their use of Facebook have much more to do with long-term costs. The immediate benefits are still there. They're still obvious. The long-term costs have started to become apparent to people. And as a result, people are beginning to consider, perhaps this is something I shouldn't do. And that's very, very different from something like glass, where the immediate costs were much more obvious. Right. And it's very different from something like uh, government regulation, right? which would say you can only use Facebook for three hours a day. Otherwise, you're going to be jailed or fined or something. Right. Yeah. 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 If you were putting a uh, a penalty on it. So this is obviously not that. And so it's an important thing that we're definitely going to touch on more, thinking about the abilities to reject technologies, especially as we start to talk about more negative technologies, mm-hmm. negative social structures, negative formations of human activity, thinking about the ways that we can disrupt Yes, I said it, disrupt. <laughs> but not the and way that we normally say it on Not, not the way, land. no. But disrupt and in some cases even entirely reject or negate these things is important. And one other note about this level of social rejection, this diffuse sort of rejection, uh, we had a listener – suggest to us that our uh, PhD-level axis of (laughs) organized and disorganized could be applied to more than just the single axis in which it was applied. And particularly, our listener was suggesting that it could be applied to the visible versus invisible axis, Mm -hmm. which we agree that that's possible, but for the work that we want visible versus invisible to do, the fact that it's unorganized versus organized doesn't really play in as much as we would expect because you can have invisible things that are highly organized mm-hmm. like secret societies or hey even, the masons or well i mean they're are they still a secret society like everybody everybody <laughs> the, knows they exist but, but no one knows what they do <laughs> yeah I, I i don't know what they do that's for sure so so that but we know they're organized right. so very very organized uh, or you can also have things that are very visible 
but are disorganized. Things like, you know, being a sports fan of a particular team. You can never talk to another fan of that team and still be a fan, or you can have, (laughs) you know, go to the games where there's 100,000 other people, et cetera, et cetera. So that sort of social alliance can be very visible. You may have all your sportswear wardrobe, but not really, you know, be organized with your peers in any coherent way. (laughs) So at a level where that definitely can be related, it doesn't do a lot of the work that we want invisible versus visible to do. Right. And one of the things, therefore, that we will come back to is what kinds of responses are appropriate for dealing with particular structural problems. We may find that A social response is not only the most effective and therefore pragmatically the one we might want to choose, but the correct choice, the one that is the most ethically justifiable, or at times we might find that a government response was or is a necessary corrective to what is a socially enforced problem. An obvious Mm -hmm. example that comes to mind is desegregation in the United States, where most of the segregation was carried on socially and enforced socially. And it required government intervention to undo. So that back and forth, which kind of pressure needs to be applied to address certain inequities, for example, is a topic to which we'll return considerably throughout the season. Obviously, we think in the case of Facebook or other social media that a social response is not only what is happening, but also what is the appropriate response. Right. And on the note of segregation and desegregation, there were social structures that were enforced by legal structures mm-hmm. and vice versa. Yep. So there were some some pairing of the issues there. And so there will be some splitting of hairs to determine who's pushing <laughs> what in what direction. But we still think it's valuable to think about it. And sometimes it's both. <laughs> Before you go, which we don't do very often anymore, but we want to point out when things are really important, Colombia is having its first ceasefire in many years of a over 50-year-long civil war. And the way that they're doing it was by four years of peace talks between the rebels and the government. And so talk about winning slowly. We just want to give a shout out to people who are winning it slowly. Yes, and indeed. peace is fragile. Peace is always fragile, but this one particularly so. By the time you read this, things may have gone wrong. But even just the fact that there will be a ceasefire that the rebels have agreed to, which includes giving up their weapons. It's a big deal. It's a big, big deal. So shout out to Columbia and good work. The song at the beginning was The Best Part by Young Mister. We used it by permission. Please don't use it without permission. Thanks to Andrew Fallows, Jeremy W. Sherman, and Kurt Klassen for sponsoring the show. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can go to patreon.com slash winning slowly or give a one-off at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. Cha-ching! 10% of whatever you give us goes to the Internet Archive so that people like Stephen, who are doing PhD work on things happening on the Internet, can look them up in a decade because that matters. You can also support the show by helping other people find it. If you like what we're up to, please do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. That really does help. Yep. 
Also, we do love to hear from you, so you should say hello on social media, or you can always email us at hello at winningslowly.org. And we have enjoyed the feedback we got in the last couple of weeks, including from Austin Taylor, who we referenced a couple minutes ago, and also Chad Radishak, who made some interesting points about the Internet Archive that we'll come back to at some point in a future discussion. And as always, thanks for listening. That's going to be a fun editing job because I couldn't talk today. Yeah, that's on you, man. It's all on me. I did an admirably good job for a Monday morning. Yep.